0: Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to be exploring Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. For those of you who may not know, Anton LaVey wrote a best-selling book called The Satanic Bible and was the founder of the Church of Satan in San Francisco. In fact, I used to live nearby. My guest is Carl Abrahamsson. I'll be speaking to him from his home in Stockholm, Sweden. He is a writer of both fiction and nonfiction. He is what you would call a magico-anthropologist, as well as a filmmaker, photographer And musician, and he is active in the magical community. His most recent book is called Ah Culture, the Unseen Forces that Drive Culture Forward. He is also the publisher of the annual anthology of Ah Culture called The Fenris Wolf. In addition, he has published Resonances, an anthology of his essays, lectures, and interviews. His most recent documentary film is entitled Anton LaVey, Into the Devil's Den. Some of his other film titles include Cinemagician, Conversations with Kenneth Anger, and Lunacy, a film praising the lunar forces and witches from all times and spaces. And also, Poems are living things. Of course, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Carl. It's a pleasure to see you.
1: Thank you, Jeff. It's wonderful to be here
0: in this uh, actual virtual sphere. Yes, uh, you're, you're many, many thousands of miles away from me, and I'm delighted to be able to have a yeah, instant conversation with you. It almost feels like you're in the same room with me, and I have to say, uh, it's probably good to let our viewers know right at the outset that I feel a kind of compatibility with you because you've had a lifelong interest in the esoteric and the occult as I have. You've had a, a connection to Anton LaVey and his Church of Satan. And I've had, uh, uh n- not nearly as much of a connection as you, but I've met some of those people and lived uh in the same neighborhood as the uh, Church of Satan itself in San Francisco. So, uh, I have a good feeling about them, actually, probably because uh as a resident of San Francisco, San Francisco always prided itself on being a congenial home for oddball characters. And yeah, an- yeah. A- Anton LaVey met that definition to the hilt.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean it's it's also. Um, I don't know really what the situation is like now in San Francisco. We were there, my wife and I, uh, in last autumn, and it was quite shocking to see the kind of uh, deterioration in a way because there were simply so many homeless people. I've never seen that number that amount of people living on the streets and it was quite a shock because when I started going to San Francisco in the late 80s that was of course you know um, taking care of my romanticism and of course uh, getting to meet uh, lavey and many other people also in San Francisco and it was like a hot spot of creativity and still open-mindedness carrying on in this tr- tradition from the 60s in a way um, so I always uh, lived in that kind of uh, It was a real situation. It was a very cool and groovy place to be. And then I returned, you know, as um, decades passed in a way. But this this last trip or this most recent trip was kind of depressing because I could feel none of that. It was either glitzy corporate or very, very destitute.
0: Well, I think uh, it's the impact of the high tech industry. Uh, housing prices have gone through the roof uh, in in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I used to uh, live in a, a rented uh, house that uh, when I lived there in the 80s I think they wanted to sell for $500,000. Today it's worth about 4 million, I understand. Uh it it's made it impossible for people uh, to afford housing. Uh, in in the, it's changed the character uh, completely since I moved out of San Francisco and and, and the Bay Area entirely in 2001. So uh, I I know it's changed dramatically. But back to Anton Levay, uh, let's talk about how how your interest in uh, the Church of Satan began.
1: Right. Um, I think uh, what happens if you are, um, when you're a teenager, you're of course hungry for uh, information that sort of resonates. And at that uh, period in life, you want some kind of a little bit of a rebel energy. And that takes different kinds of expressions, because, you know, different strokes for different folks. I became very interested in uh, the occult on one side, and uh, what well, let's call it transgressive art, or it could be B-movies, or or great uh, experimental music, anything that sort of went against the grain, and even within this supposedly you know uh, free-spirited world of occultism, historical occult- occultism or or contemporary one, you know there, there was still kind of a, a prejudice present against uh, LaVey and his Church of Satan and that of course appealed to me but at the same time uh, these were different times and even in uh, Stockholm where where I grew up there were a couple of actually uh, a couple of occult bookstores and they they carried the Satanic Bible so I was thrilled Um, and I got it and I did feel that resonance uh, mostly because his approach was different. There, There was some old stuff in there. I'm thinking of the Enochian keys and you know classical arcane stuff but it was sort of presented in a new way so i did feel that resonance and i did started you know i started to to work with um, satan as a symbol in a way as as a a force that existed within me and it was sort of it's specific um, every environment every group dynamic every society every culture needs Satan. It needs some kind of opposer, some kind of liberating force, something that goes against, something that provokes. And of course, when you're a teenager, that's a good, pretty good symbol to use. So, in the midst of my sponginess, of of sort of taking in uh, a lot of uh, highbrow, lowlife uh, culture in a way, uh, I felt a strong resonance. And then I also did music. Uh, which was also a classical thing to do. When you're interested in music, you want to try your hand at it. So I did. I started a band called White Stains. And as I was also more or less in love with Jane Mansfield, as LaVey had been or at least had a fling with, uh, I wrote a song called Sweet Jane, just like the Lou Reed song, uh, about Jane Mansfield's relationship with LaVey, because I thought that was cool. And it still is, uh, and and uh, basically another friend of mine said when the record came out it was our first record, so I was very very proud. Uh, and Sweet Jane was the A side of this single, and my friend in England, Genesis Poyorge, said that you should send this to Anton LaVey. I'm I'm sure he would find it you know interesting at least. He d- I knew he didn't like rock and roll, uh, but anyway I had the address and I did send it, and I didn't expect anything to happen basically however something did happen he sent me a very nice polite letter back thanking uh, sort of acknowledging the fact that i'd done this and and uh, you know uh, being grateful for keeping jane's you know spirit alive in a way um just all-around pleasant polite letter in which he also made me a member of the Church of Satan. Because that was kind of his shtick. You know, people he met were either celebrities or people he liked. He sort of handed them a membership card saying, here, you, you should have this. You know, and that was great. I was, of course, overjoyed. And then about, uh, I would say, a year later, this was in, I got the letter in 88, and we kept in touch via, you know, letters and stuff. And I had started my... Uh, or cultural fanzine the fenris wolf and uh, um, Lavey. let me use some older writings that he had had in the cloven hoof their newsletter and that was fantastic and anyway in 1989 it became the time for me to actually go to california and of course i wanted to to uh, meet him and, and blanche barton and just see san francisco and many other people uh And it was, of course, like, I wouldn't say a childhood dream. It was a teenage dream that became a reality. And uh, we really got along well. And it was fantastic. And then up until 1993, I went there every year. And we hung out and we watched movies and uh, listening to him play music and we talked about many, many things. Very few of these things were actually occult in the old school way of seeing it, less having to do with with, uh, arcane approaches to magic, for instance. Uh, It was mostly about um, weird movies. Uh, Marx Brothers, Eddie Cantor, uh, great comedies, uh, Ben Hecht, um, golden age Hollywood basically and, and the weirder aspects of that, plus music, of course, he was just a musical genius and could play almost anything that you wanted him to play. He was like he had everything in his mind. He could just sort of project it out through his fingers onto the keyboards. It was, that was really magical. So that's basically how it started.
0: We ought to clarify one thing right off the bat because in a previous video I mentioned offhand the Church of Satan in San Francisco and I got a comment from a viewer who was shocked. How could you talk about them? Don't you know that these people commit ritual murders? Uh, so, what can you say about that?
1: That's, of course, such a classical, uh, reactive way that is steeped in a kind of a primitive lore, a primitive mythology that's, of course, been propagated by uh, various Christian churches along the millennia. You know, there's always this need of scapegoating. And in a chaotic time in which uh, organized religion is sort of seemingly losing its uh, power, then, of course, the need for a scapegoat of that particular nature, meaning the satanic, becomes again something uh, valid and valuable. And let's keep in mind that LaVey also wrote, even in the Satanic, satanic Bible, which came out in, in 1969, that you know Satan is the greatest supporter of the church in a way because without him there wouldn't be any church. They need someone to threaten uh, with to, to escape. See, It's like kind of a medieval approach. You know, you, you keep the peasants. Um, uh, as serfs, basically, by telling them that if you don't pay these taxes that you cannot afford to pay, then this gobbledygook monster will come and and uh, eat your kids. You know, it's the same thing over and over. And also in various uh, group dynamics of of a more primitive nature, it's the same thing in all cultures. There's always this thing: the other, the threat of the other coming to take your kids. You know, and of course, eat them. Uh, very few cannibals uh, have actually uh, – cannibal cultures have actually existed on, on planet Earth, but but there's always that thing. So I would say, you know, the Church of Satan was um – construction. It was based on Lavey's very, very genuine interest in magic and occultism, because he had this thing called the magic circle before the Church of Satan even began, uh, where he talked about his interests uh, a small group of uh, like-minded people uh, at the Black House in San Francisco. And then What I mean by construction, he constructed a church and wrote a Bible that in itself is kind of, you know, audacious in a way, but that turned out to be a great, you know, uh, business trick or a marketing trick, but there was always substance in it. It wasn't just like a, uh, a gimmick. It wasn't a ploy to attract negative attention that could be turned into something profitable. Uh, there was substance there in the in the um, uh, let's call it the occult sense, carrying on in a libertarian tradition, uh, individualistic tradition. Um, um, a magic uh, that sort of sides with the dark side, which was psychologically very savvy. Uh, LaVey was very interested in psychology and of uh, Freud and Reich and also Jung's talk about the shadow. All of these things were uh, consciously present in the construction of the Church of Satan. And LaVey's take on this was to never deny never deny never try to restrain too much but to actually indulge in the things that uh, constitute yourself as a human being meaning you are a feral beast you have these sexual passions and this lust for life and and uh, of course you need to restrain that perhaps in the sense of a law uh, or legislation or uh, the the greater totality of society as such but On a personal, individual level, uh, you should basically do what you feel is good for you. So, in that sense, carrying on from Crowley, carrying on from Rabelais, you know, carrying on from many uh, more or less enlightened people in occult history.
0: It it sort of reminds me of uh, the phrase I think Nietzsche popularized about the Dionysian culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. However, there there is a proviso there is that it was and it still is, totally okay to be Apollonian, you know, to stick with the Nietzschean thing. Uh, Dionysian, you think that, well, that's all good. I'll I'll revel. I'll revel in the sensual. I'll revel in the physical and the sexual. And, and, you know, um, however, if you want to be a nerdy little Apollonian, that's totally fine, too, because it's all about the indulgence that is the Uh, true to your core true to your inner core true to your inner you know the being the core being so that said I think there was of course obviously a lot of Nietzsche but you can always backtrack even further and and stick with uh, Schopenhauer every you know this will thing in western culture western philosophy and western society basically uh, has never been you know better synthesized than in Schopenhauer so Nietzsche took it onwards and then a lot of occult people at the turn of the previous century took that over integrating it in what used to be called uh, fittingly enough a luciferian philosophy you know to tie it in with that kind of rebellious spirit uh, or it used to be called also promethean meaning prometheus stealing the fire from from mount olympus to to share it with people uh, and i think uh, the lavean uh, uh, philosophy, uh, the Church of Satan and his uh, later writings and all of this together, is uh, Luciferian in that sense. It's rebellious, uh, but it's not necessarily rebellion, rebelling against anything else than what restricts you. You know, it's not necessarily a counter-movement to an all-round general hypocrisy. It's more like, you know, to each his own. And if you're trying, to, if someone is trying to sort of oppose me by saying what you're doing is wrong, then, you know, I should probably counteract and say that you're also wrong. And it turns into a little sandbox thing, or it could become a great intellectual uh, sparing match, whatever, or even a conflict, who knows. Uh, but the thing is, it it's not necessary to take it beyond that personal level because life is short. Uh, our life can be potentially very, very, very good and nice and interesting. And it's not also not about isolating yourself as a solitary unit. Uh, Lavey used to say that you know, Satanists are born, not made, meaning that they have this inherent outsidership. But most outsiders know that it's always in relation to I guess the, the, the greater ins- insider thing. You can never really isolate yourself, even at times, you know, you, you want to, or it would be very nice. You are still part of a greater totality of society and or a community. And you have to play along with certain uh, basic things. But if you do that and you ge- show people respect, they will very likely show you the respect that you feel you earn and you know you can be in your splen- splendid isolation. I like that ex- expression, splendid isolation. I think that sums up very much what, what LaVey and Satanism is about. You should you know cultivate what really makes you unique. And whether or not you want to show that or share it with others, that's besides the point. There are many flamboyant, satanism. Satanists. But there are also many Satanists
0: from whom we'll never hear a squeak. You, in your uh, documentary, make an offhand remark uh, that there are other Satanists who were quite critical of LeVay. They felt he was too much of a showman, that uh, he didn't represent authentic Satanism at all, according to them.
1: Right, right. That's that's uh, something that uh, you could take that to a greater uh, group dynamic level and transgenerational levels. There's there will always be a little click that sort of critiques or criticizes what's been in the past. This the revolution, and then the new ones come, and then they in turn become conservative, and then become reactionary, and then someone new comes in and takes over. Uh, it's. You can see that in occult history so many times. It's almost more like a rule than an exception. It always happens, and eventually things are sort of dissolved in chaos and, and um, personal conflicts and scandals. But it's usually just like little storms in a water glass if you look at it from, from, uh, from above. Um, with Lavey, though, it, I think the thing is that what he achieved – which is very, very rare. He achieved success, and I mean that specifically on the material level. Uh, you know, it was a grand, pretty grand lifestyle. Uh, Crowley. Uh, he inherited some money, but he spent that money. You know, <laughs> he was kind of a pauper, actually, in the last decades of his life. Whereas Lavey, when he got this thing going, it seemed to be a good, uh, successful thing, which was, of course, completely in line without shame without any shame whatsoever you know he wanted it to be a a commercial success and it turned out to be one um and of course if you are if you feel that you are you know the the true satanist or the whatever and you sit on your little chamber and you feel that you are more in touch you have a more you know, thorough and true transmission, uh, both in and out. And you see this guy who's just like in every magazine, on TV, on radio, uh, lots of naked women at his house. And if the book is selling, then of course you feel, um, I don't know, uh, I was going to say miniculed. I don't know if that's a word, miniculed. I think, you know, uh, feeling, Lesser because of the fact that there is not there is not this kind of outer reflection. You know what you say if you have signal should go out and it should be a clear signal to people. Lavey had that. He really called his approach. Then of course, as soon as anyone is financially successful, there will be people you know criticizing that. That goes for musicians. Uh, I grew up in this thing called you know uh, punk and new wave and uh, post punk. There was always this thing became ridiculous some artists were so um, talented and, and you know and they went on to, to actually make money from their music you know lo and behold uh, and then the thing was that people always said well he's pretty good but I only like the first single meaning you can only validate and, and appreciate someone's work if it's destined to go nowhere you know? <laughs> and, and, I, and I think that that's uh, it's a very basic human trait you know, in, in w- not wishing people ill necessarily, but, you know, being a bit jealous and envious of people's success.
0: Well, let's talk about the occult aspects of uh, the Church of Satan. For one thing, I understand that a very important part uh, of the religion was uh, participation in ritual activity and uh, a psychological, maybe even parapsychological, understanding of the potency of ritual.
1: Absolutely. And here <laughs> we come to uh, Lavey and his church as a kind of intersection that's very interesting, uh, because uh, you c- if you look at it traditionally, you had all of these Groups working in, the, for instance, the so-called Western ceremonial tradition, like the Golden Dawn or the Crowley groups or um, who basically uh, took on a kind of heritage from Freemasonic sources, so much symbolism, incomprehensible things, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we reenacting this Egyptian mystery? You know, uh, people don't really question that kind of stuff. They just go into it, you know, head first. And maybe it works for them, maybe it Well, I think the difference here with LaVey was that he uh, expressly, you know, he formulated what it was for him. Ritual is psychodrama. And you can fill that psychodramatic principle with symbols that are relevant Mm to for you not necessarily what you know the elders or the top brass or uh, what someone else has constructed for you in the hope that it will you know make you stay a paying member of the group in question for lave it was much more of a real uh, tense electrifying experiences in which you wove in um, things that were really relevant for for instance the transformation that you want to to achieve for real tangibly you know for real in your own life or the group or for the group so that said there was again this kind of psychological awareness of what ritual actually does and and you know ritual as um, initiation not just as some kind of theater in a lodge but initiation as a moving yourself on to a new level of understanding of yourself, so I, I think that's the the main thing that he brought to that table. He brought things to many tables. There was a division in the Church of Satan between, uh, as stated in the Satanic Bible, of lesser magic, so called, and higher, greater magic, so called. Lesser magic is this thing which. Uh, was kind of anathema to talk about in these more highbrow occult circles, meaning affecting real, material, tangible change in life. And you could equate that with some kind of different facets of manipulation. You know, I want this to happen. How do I manipulate my surroundings into making that happen? You know, that was unheard of that someone was so frank and willing to talk about these things uh, in such a I would say, honest, (laughs) honest way. And again, psychologically savvy. Uh, And the greater magic, that was more what, you know, you could call occult, occult. Uh, Elaborate rituals calling on forces that LaVey would say are not exterior uh, tangible forces everything was psychological these things these names these cultural religious traditions that we've been brought up in they affect us on an inner psychological level you can work with those things too by again these psychodramatic things like wands or swords and bells and of as we know he liked to have nude altars to have naked ladies on his altar uh, to create a change uh, attention in that sphere, which he called the ritual chamber, he called it very intelligently uh, it 's an intellectual decompression chamber, and I find that so brilliant because most of the you know magicians so called that I have met in the western tradition at least they are intellectuals first and foremost, and they have a hard time with getting to that point where you have to let go in order to shake you know, uh, something else, both within you and outside of you. And for Lavey to call um, uh, the ritual space, the temple, if you will, to call it an intellectual decompression chamber, was brilliant. One of many, many brilliant things uh, that I found in his uh, writings. So then later on, there has been this, it's not a debate, but there's been like pro and contra. Did he believe in magic? Did he not believe in magic? As some people say that, no, he was a strict materialist and he liked to manipulate things. By Crowley's definition, you could say that that's magic too. But I'm not sure. I think that what confuses things a little bit was that he was never interested after the first phase in the grand dramatic um orchestration of uh, like arcane magic the sort of the, the those kinds of gimmicks he early on created his own magic and that's the best you can ever do meaning he took things that resonated with him in his life for instance first and foremost the music he worked with music playing music performing music as ritual it didn't matter whether there was anyone there to listen to what he played When he played it, it could equally well be him alone in his kitchen where he had like 10 synthesizers, you know, he could hammer away and play and release that kind of emotion that needs to be released in a ritual situation for it to become uh, really really uh, effective that's also something that he brought to the table brilliant he talked openly about the need for emotion i have never found that in in you know there's not much of that in the western ceremonial tradition it's all about system it's about rigid systems that you have to sort of overcome uh, and then when you're at the pinnacle what is it actually that you're looking down upon? Well, you you have your uh, medals, you have your um, you know funny hats, but there's really nothing to show for it. Uh, so Lavey brought in these very important concepts like emotion and said that you can work with the arcane with the traditional but it's better to find your own language and of course not everybody is an artist so it's not sort of excluding people who are not creative everybody can be creative everybody has things that they feel uh resonant with and those are the things that one should uh, work with it's never for show it's for generating an uh, emotional transcendence in a moment where something is expressed
0: well, that would almost make him uh comparable to uh, the Eastern mystics who talk so much about transcendence as as the goal
1: yeah absolutely there there is of course the the main um dividing line you know the mystics their thing is to go further and further inwards to sort of uh reveal um I don't know, uh, it becomes moralistic when I say to reveal how pointless it is. Life is not pointless, but the Eastern approach is always to sort of pluck the, the flower and get to the jewel in the lotus, so to speak, um, instead of adding things that you feel are fun <laughs> and cool and satisfying, which was more like, you know, LaVey's magical approach, meaning you create change so that gives you more satisfaction in a way. Uh, and again, that kind of blatant, honest Uh, description of how things uh, function in the human mind according to him Uh, that was new, it was revelatory for someone to to, uh, use, again, it's a language and a terminology that's basically more related to self-help books in a way, what do you want to achieve do this you know, it, it's uh, so it's supposed to be it should be tied in with real tangible results. He wanted that for people. And I felt when we talked when we talked about things like that, that he was he was uh, genuine about that. But he also stressed very much that, you know, you, you can't get it wholesale. You have to work with it on your own uh, terms with your own uh, symbols.
0: Now, you uh, have written an essay comparing Alistair Crowley to Rudolf Steiner, two very different characters in the magical universe. Uh, how would you rank LaVey uh, with those two figures? I would rank
1: him as a modern figure, and I would rank the Steiner and Crowley as uh, bridge characters. They bridged the old uh, and the modern but they never really became modern, uh, and I think they, in a way, um, what do you call it? Uh, when you you run so fast towards the finishing line, but you run so fast that you stumble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they never really made it. they never really made it to the finishing line. So they 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 were good bridge people for sure, and both excellent synthesizers synthesizing you know Steiner had his Theosophical uh, thing and of course other people in that environment had synthesized before him but he just made a great concoction I have a great respect for for uh, for him and his work same thing with Crowley he was Crowley was the you know penultimate synthesizer, brilliant, truly brilliant. But Lavey was a genuinely modern uh, magician, occultist, philosopher, whatever you want to call him, in the sense that he was rooted in the now. There was no romantic longing. There was no there was, was no need to integrate you know um, antiquity or the Greek pantheon or or uh, anything having to do with a um, mediterranean culture of 2000 years ago you know it was something here and now and he of course reacted to uh, he reacted in a way to um, the hippies and uh, sort of wishy-washy things because the ideals of that stem from the hippie movement hadn't really been crystallized it was all a little bit infused by by um, chemical uh, intoxication Um, later on it it fused and crystallized into other more, more substantial things. But he, of course, he, he didn't like that. He liked sort of that people were, you know, they should be free, but they should also be responsible. He liked that they could choose between this and that without any overarching morals. But he didn't like it to be a self-effacing thing. He, he liked the self. He, he wanted people to be strong in their identities and characters and, and to fully, fully enjoy themselves
0: with or without others. You know, when I watched your documentary and saw some of the old videos of LeVay, for example, appearing with his cape on uh, The Joe Pine Show, which I used to watch when I was a young person. Here's what it reminded me of: um, the Broadway musical "Damn Yankees," in in which the devil appears almost in identical garb, at least the way it was portrayed in the local community theater in the town where I grew up, Uh, and my parents were all uh, involved in "Damn Yankees," and uh, it's almost as as if he's drawing from a, a great deal from the pop culture of the '50s and '60s.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even further back, I'd say, uh, 30s and 40s. Because, you know, he he was, uh, first and foremost, he was a musician, but he was also a, a movie buff. He was like the, one of the finest movie buffs I've ever met. And, you know, he was born in 1930. So, Anything from like age 15 and up to 25, I'd say, it really shapes you as a person. So we're looking at here someone who was shaped between 1945 and 1955. And it was such a great time in in uh, American uh, cultural history with Hollywood going from Uh, no longer in the golden age of these hyper stars but going into the territory of film noir you know smaller productions aesthetically very stark and dark uh, integrating uh, the anti-hero in in a way that had never happened before those were the things that sort of gelled later on taking on the satanic uh, the the symbol of Satan as a kind of anti-hero so he was completely immersed in songs of the era and he uh, in his magical work he was also a bit of a uh, i guess you could call it a musicologist or a musical archaeologist he got sheet music even from the 20s from the teens you know and were played those songs because he believed that there was power in things that had been discarded by the collective discarded by normality he felt that there was an no occult power in that, that he could use when he played those songs that hadn't basically been played for for decades. Um, and many of, you know, he found Maybe consciously, maybe not. He found many things that were connected to the devil thematically, you know, that kind of thing. And, and of course, it happened also in, in um, mainstream films that the devil was always present. I'm thinking of one uh, beautiful director called Archie Mayo that we talked about. And, and, you know, I watched some of his films, this one called... Um, uh, is it called uh, angel on my shoulder basically when when the devil has to come up to to uh to us <laughs> and it's not a you know it 's not a good uh, scene so this this thing where uh, the devil is not necessarily something of course not medieval horrible grotesque monster it's more of this refined uh, sophisticated satirical uh, agent that sometimes nudges people along in a kind of a loving way but most often just pressing where it hurts if a culture or society uh, is imbued with you know uh, corruption and hypocrisy there needs to be a satanic figure that pops up and says hey what did you just do don't you know it's illegal to accept these you know bribes whatever um and i think that was around in popular culture in america when at the time when he grew up so he sort of you know immersed himself in that too and the theatrics he had you know worked at a circus and sideshows. he knew that kind of uh carny carnival worker uh showmanship um, how that worked how to grab someone's attention by just these few tricks you know having like plastic horns uh and people in in series sort of so-called serious occultism ask how can he expect to be taken seriously um when he he dresses like that and when he uses such like cheap gimmicks but the thing is that he used and i think i, I um someone um says that in the film also is that the, the, this word uh, or term bullshit detector when you act crazy like that that you know go against the grain of what should be serious occultism and appear on tv and again you have an amount of success then of course you will be uh, thought of as someone who is not serious but again if you are a serious occultist, you will be spending half of your life in discussion with people who want to either go, you know, in opposition, say, how can you believe that? How can that? Meaning, kind of pseudo serious uh, discourse. Um, or you could wear these things and lose 90% of the people because they will never approach you because they think you're you're just another showman. However, there will be people who see through this, you know, uh, who can pass the bullshit detector test. And with those people, you can have substantial conversations. And I think that's what he was after. It was a Uh, many layers to that he wanted to grab the attention and he used media uh, brilliantly but he also wanted to to get in touch with people who could see through it who could see through the gimmicks and have some serious uh, work with those people
0: what you're describing reminds me of the time I was in Mexico City at a conference on demonology. This is where I met Peter Gilmore, the high priest of the Church of Satan, and Carla Levay, uh, Anton Levay's daughter, were there as speakers at the conference, and. I actually had a devil costume, and I came uh, to the podium <laughs> wearing it, and I introduced my talk by saying, well, everybody here is talking about demons, but I'm the real one.
1: <laughs> and so
0: I, I gave my lecture as if I was the devil him, mm-hmm. himself. Uh, it went over quite well, actually. But the point I made at the time was that um, the devil is like the ancient uh, Greek god Pan with the cloven hoofs. Yes. Very much so. uh, who, who is a nature deity and, and close to nature, and whereas our modern uh, Christian culture has this idea of dominating nature rather rather than living in harmony with it and and so that uh, one finds in satanism um a, or demon uh, worship of any kind a, a sort of in, on the one hand a, a being closer to nature on the other hand a critique of uh, some of the hypocrisy in modern culture and i think there's a third element that deserves mention which is you know the great work about satan in western literature is milton's paradise lost and milton wrote this as a devout christian attempting to explain satan from a christian perspective as as the arch demon who opposed the rule of of god and since that time every uh, critic that i'm aware of uh, in renaissance literature says that inadvertently milton turned satan into a heroic figure not a uh, what would be the opposite of a heroic figure
1: anti-heroic perhaps <laughs> yeah no but absolutely you're you're completely uh, right and i think that uh, we are also uh, inherently uh, prejudiced when we talk about these things because we grow up in a culture that is essentially dualistic in nature because we live in monotheism and monotheism it contains dualism it's either or you know it's god or the devil but the human psyche is much more dynamic and versatile and needs more options that's why you know pantheism or polytheism um I would argue is a lot healthier than monotheistic cultures uh, because you have this thing where there is always a trickster in in the polytheistic pantheon, you know, because it's all a reflection of our own psyche. And we have all of these elements uh, within us. It's not only that we are God when we feel that we're doing the right thing or then the devil tempts us. That's such a uh, crude simplification that creates – fatigue of of the human mind and the human psyche so you need to look at the entire palette the bouquet of different forces which could range from uh, really you know high lofty morals and philosophical speculations down to nitty gritty crude uh, sometimes even cruel sexual behavior and and then of course all the things in between that constitute uh, the psyche of a human being so i think that uh, you're mentioning uh, pan for instance that's exactly where the devil figure in christianity came from this uh, unrestrained libidinal force that uh, shocked people scared the ladies uh, and and uh, yet was so revered because it was also so tightly connected with fertility and we have now become so abstracted in our lifestyles and in our cultures and in our uh, you know uh, the places where we live that we have lost touch with that but it's just um it's a, the, our civilization, what we live in, even monotheistic attitudes, it's, it's a varnish that you could easily scrape off. Uh, situations of war, for instance, show that time and time again, mostly, uh, you know, for bad. Um, but the thing is that if you simplify too much, then you, you will be completely lost. You know, because you you will, it's an enforced schizophrenia in a way, where where this just either this that's good or that that's bad. But we have a f- much much fuller range than that to uh, live with, and uh, you know, I guess that's what most people actually do. That's a funny comment in the film too. Is that I can't remember adverbatim what what uh, the person says, but it's just like um, Satanism is this thing where. Uh, People uh, live by Satanism every day, but they'll never admit it.
0: Well, Carl Abrahamson, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so pleased to uh, introduce you to the new Thinking Aloud audience. And uh, I'm also delighted to share with our viewers that uh, we hope to have you back often, as a matter of fact.
1: I would love that very much.
0: So thank you so much for being with me. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. It was great. And I'll be happy to come back. And uh, there's uh, always plenty of things to discuss.
0: And for those of you viewing, thank you for being with us.